Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm talking to Warren Bookland who is a academic and writer and he has written a book which will be published in the autumn about the author uh, controversy uh, concerning Citizen Kane between Herman Mankiewicz and uh, Orson Welles. Um, who wrote Citizen Kane? And we're going to get into it with detailed analysis. Um, if you enjoy the conversation, please remember to like, review, and spread the word as far and wide as you can. There are lots of episodes available now, over 100 episodes available now. So if you have not uh, been with us since the beginning, as many of you have not, then uh, feel free to go back and uh, fish out some of the older episodes, which I will be sort of uh, updating occasionally and putting and reposting as um, as time passes, especially over the summer as there are lots of festivals to attend, and so it makes releasing new episodes a little bit bumpy uh, to schedule. Uh, can I also uh, put a quick shout-out for Cinema Italia, my uh, other podcast, which is going out uh, on a weekly basis. Um, the, here we talk about films from uh, the Italian scene, uh, from spaghetti westerns, gialli, um, epics to neorealism, uh, with enthusiasts, film fans, film critics, directors, and actors. Uh, so you can find that if you just Google my name and Cinema Italia. You can find it on all the uh, uh, podcast platforms, uh, popular podcast platforms, I, I dare to say. Spotify, um, Amazon, Audible, um, YouTube, uh, and and Apple Podcasts, of course. Okay, but before you do any of that, I've given you way too much to do, haven't I? Before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Uh, uh, I, you know, I studied my PhD at uh, University of East Anglia, uh, supervised by Thomas Alsasser. Uh, in fact, uh, halfway through, he actually moved to Amsterdam, and I had a choice to stay in. Uh, in Norwich or to spend uh, you know my final year in Amsterdam so I obviously did the, the latter so uh, I thought that was to be a bit more exciting so while Thomas Elsasser was setting up film studies in um, 
University of Amsterdam in the mid 1990s. You know, I, I was there as well, um, finishing my PhD thesis. And going to Amsterdam, you know, opened up a whole um, vista of, uh, you know, new colleagues. And, um, you know, I started teaching uh, with uh, Thomas on the MA there. Um, and after several years of teaching on the MA, we we began to uh, put our notes together into a book. And that became the book, Studying Contemporary American Film, A Guide to Movie Analysis. So we spent several years teaching that stuff uh, to MA students, and then, it, and then it came out as a book, which was, um, you know, halfway between a textbook and a research monograph, and um, it, it did quite well. You know, the publisher wanted us to do a second edition, you know, to change all the films, but you know that would have been a huge effort. So we said, well, you know, the theory would stay the same, so we might as well, you know. We couldn't really invest the time in in doing that. Yeah, I was just say uh, out out of that really came um, this this idea of uh, the puzzle film, which um, again that came out of that seminar, but where we were studying contemporary cinema and you know trying to distinguish puzzle films from other types of films. Uh, Thomas developed his own concept of the mind game film. So uh, we had these parallel um, developments uh, at the same time. Uh, we, we sort of had this uh, um, sort of playful critique of each other because he thought my notion of puzzle film was far too narrow. And, you know, and he had a notion of mind game film, which is far broader. Basically, I was just interested in, in these films from a narratological perspective. And he had a much broader agenda, more cultural philosophical historical agenda that uh, he you know continued to develop for the next uh, 20 years and I basically just stuck to um, to narrative theory of, the, of these films um it really emerged from um watching David Lynch films mm. um like uh Lost Highway was really the film that did it for me uh watching um Lost Highway several times in uh you know midnight screenings in, in Amsterdam it is pretty uh, remarkable um you know going to the films um with all, with all these fans to watch um uh Lost Highway and then trying to figure out you know what what the film means and you know of course I always said well it's not what it means it's how it means and uh, we need to study how you know if the film is ambiguous that we need to study how it is ambiguous rather than try to shut down the ambiguity and fix it. Um, so we need to acknowledge the ambiguity. Um, so that was really the beginnings of that uh, interest in, in, in puzzle films. So, you know, all developed out of that late 90s um, uh, interest and just being in uh, Amsterdam with uh, Thomas Alsasso. It was a very creative period for me, very formative. What was, the, what was the distinction then between what you were de defining as puzzle films and he was de defining as mind game films? For me, well, he interpreted the term puzzle as being you can solve you can solve it, you mm. can solve the film. There's an answer. Yeah, and I never actually meant it in that way, but nonetheless, that was um, um, the way Thomas read it. Um, and he... Um, you know, one of his main issues about the mind game film is that it's it's irresolvable, and mm. you have to acknowledge that um, there are these fundamental contradictions that you cannot resolve. And for him, the mind game film actually acknowledges that, rather than offering, you know, you, you can even use Claude Levi Strauss and say, you know, the film puzzle films and mind game films do not offer imaginary solutions to real contradictions. You become aware of those real contradictions so there's no so you're not going to give me the answer to lost highway then um no i i think those who say they tell you what it means they're they're just um actually missing you know half the film because they're as soon as you try to disambiguate it then you, you're missing the point so. yeah and uh, david chase has a similar opinion about the ending of uh sopranos you know if you if you think you know the answer it's uh you've 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 missed the point entirely yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's a little bit of me that sort of I I I 
think there are some films which sort of look like puzzle films in that definition, but uh but but they do have an answer in the sense that like something like Christopher Nolan's Inception, I think it's very clear that there is a very distinct and specific answer, and he's using a sort of editing device, i.e., he's cutting before the before what 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 would be revealing um happens. Uh, just in order to maintain a sense of ambiguity rather than because there's any genuine yeah. ambiguity. Well, if you have a $200 million budget, then uh, um, you have to offer some solution to to the audience, I, I guess. That's the problem when the mind game film or puzzle film elements then enter the mainstream, then obviously they're, they're compromised. You know, David Lynch obviously didn't uh, compromise with a lost highway or indeed with Mulholland Drive but uh, you know Christopher Nolan is is sort of using them within a more traditional narrative structure you know you could be hush just to push back a little bit on that i mean i'm no i'm no you know i think i have certain problems with nolan definitely but i mean if anything things like dunkirk and tenet it, he seems to be constantly spending a lot of money on on st- on plots which are sort of bafflingly uh complex in in his you know i mean unnecessary i mean dunkirk could easily have just been a fairly straightforward war film and he chose not to do that so i'm not sure how how much he's compromising there yeah i, I think tenant he, he didn't compromise yeah. um that um i think it's uh people just say it's baffling but then that that you know, with this large budget, and I, I think that's that's part of its strength, actually, that he mm. actually went ahead with it. Yeah, I think uh, you know, some people say it's, you know, they they criticise it, and I think it's um, if they do, then I think it's an underrated film. You know, uh, you know, much more challenging and complex than Inception. So yeah, yeah I much prefer you know Tenant to uh, in, Inception in that sense. Yeah, and so uh, so now you're working on this new book, which oh, you've 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 finish this new book, which is on um, the authorship. I mean, this is a different kind of puzzle in a way, the authorship of Citizen uh, Kane, which has been, um, you know, argued about for decades and recently re-emerged with um, the film Mank uh, by David Fincher, written by his father, um, that that rehearsed some of the arguments for believing that um, Mankiewicz, um, Herman Mankiewicz, is that right? Yeah. Uh, was the was was more the author than Orson Welles had let on. Um, uh, yeah. So so what what's your what's your approach? Uh, well, I, I guess I should point out what I'm trying to avoid. Mm. Firstly, um, you know, all the debates around Citizen Kane authorship they're they're you know completely um, subjective. They're impressionistic. They're based on confirmation bias. Um, that it is people saying, well, I knew Wells, therefore I, I know the truth of this, which um, clearly isn't, um, you know, if you if it was a court case, it, it wouldn't stand up in court just saying, well, I know this person did it. You know, you need, you need uh, independent evidence. Yeah, assertion is not argument. Yeah. After reading all of these accounts of uh, the, um, you know, the to and fro, between various people and um, their critiques of each other, I, I thought, well, you know, we, we can take this to a completely different level and um, look at it in terms of the evidence that we do have, which are the, the uh, various versions of the screenplay, and then um, use statistics to, uh, you know, to measure and quantify the authorship because that, that is possible. Uh, you know, you can go go all the way back to Aristotle, and, uh, who said, um, you know, he defined style in terms of um, the the writer's um, identity, and says, you know, the, the the writer can claim a piece of text because um, as part of their identity um, exists within the text, so they can claim it. And ever since then, it's you know, we've been defining style. And the issue is we really need evidence um, for, you know, measuring star. These are the two things, the measuring the star and quantifying it. And then when you've got a dispute between two authors, you can then compare them in terms of the star that has been quantified. 
So once you've reduced it to a numerical value, you can uh, you can make comparisons. So, so rather how, than just making assertions. Yeah. So how do you uh, reduce style to a, a numerical value? Yeah, that is uh, part of the complex part of the book, but I, I try to go through it as uh, uh, simply as I can. Okay, so as I said, the, uh, the key is then quantifying linguistic features of style. And you know, the basic way of um, quantifying style is to count the frequency of linguistic features, you know, letters, words, different word types, pronouns, uh, and even punctuation. You know, punctuation is actually quite important when you're defining authorship. If you have two authors like Wells and Mankiewicz, you can um, you can identify these particular linguistic features that have that have a high frequency in one author and a low frequency in the other author. So those are the um, linguistic features that we're looking for. So um, and so these are called the distinctive linguistic features because uh, their frequencies are um, different in in both authors. Now, obviously, you can use statistics to then and measure that difference because some differences are significant and some are not significant, but I can get onto that later. Um, to identify the author's uh, style then, I needed a control group. So I um, managed to collect uh, 40,000 word samples from each author's um, other screenplays. Uh, then use software to generate the frequency of all linguistic features, um, you know, from letters, punctuation, words, and uh, two-word collocations. You know, I did this systematically. I just focused on, you know, letters, first of all, looked at all the differences and then moved on to words. You know, this took, took several weeks. So you generate these huge lists of features and their relative frequency. The relative frequency simply means the frequency of this feature in relation to the whole data set. So it's 40,000 word sample. And um, then you just, you know, count a particular word and divide the word into that 40,000 word sample, then you get the relative frequency. So I, I did this for, for both authors, just um, compared them. And uh, I eventually identified um, 44 linguistic features that have a high frequency in one author and a very low frequency in the other author. So that's the, um, the statistical profile of, of each author. And, you know, it, it's very mundane. It's words like uh, day and uh, the and uh, full stop, you know, things like that. It's, mm. it, um, that's what, but, you know, you, you have no idea what you're going to come up with. It, you know, it really is a, you know, uh, a process of discovery of seeing what distinguishes Wells from Mankiewicz. So I eventually got these uh, linguistic profiles, so these 44 words, that have high frequency in Wells and low frequency in Mankiewicz, and actually the other way around, it, get, it gets quite complicated because um, that, that's not the same. But once you've got those, that profile, I then um, compared it to the, frequent, the frequency of those 44 linguistic features. I then looked for those features in the Citizen Kane screenplay and then counted you know their frequency and then compared it to the frequency in wells and their frequency in mankovich and i did that three times so i i just compared their their um profiles to the whole screenplay of Susan mm. again i then divided into four thousand word segments so i ended up with seven segments and then uh, the film is divided into 13 major scenes um, so I then compared the profiles to uh, the 13 major scenes, which, again, generates huge amounts of data. Now, a lot of procedural issues here. Um, I, I can actually give you an example. Uh, you know, we, we may lose everybody. No, I, go, we, go ahead. This is interesting. So. Um, because... Uh, you know the way I've described it. You can you can raise a, a lot of um, objections, sure. but I was I was aware of all of the um, issues and problems involved. So this is why it took a long time. Mm. 
um, you know, I, I then made sure that um, I didn't fall into the usual traps. Um, so let me give an example of the word um, that has a that is very distinctive, and it's the word day. Okay, I'll begin with the end result. The word day has a distinctive ratio of 3.41, which basically means um, Mankovic uses it, you know, 3.41 times more than Wells does. Right. Okay. And if we look at the numbers uh, in the 40,000 word example, a uh, sample for Mankovic, you know, he uses the word day uh, 79 times. Um, Orson Wells, in his 40,000 word sample, uses the word day 23 times. Now, okay, those, those are raw figures, but because the data sets are the same size, we, we can make a direct comparison there. But um, obviously, Susan Cain is uh, a different sample size. It's 26,000 words, basically. So to compare different sample sizes, you simply convert them to, to um, um, you know, a percentage. So this is why we use percentages, because it standardizes the results. So we can compare... Um, samples of different size. Hmm. So the 79 uh, uses of the word day in Mankovic in his 40,000 word sample, you know, it comes to um, you know, 0.198%. Hmm. And again, remember, percent means out of 100. So he uses it 0.198 times per 100 words. And Wells, it's obviously even smaller because he uses the word day 23 times in his 40,000 word sample. So it becomes a very small percentage of 0.058. Okay, so now I look at Susan Cain and I found the word day 60 times. Right. But 60 times in a sample size of 26,000 words. So we can't make any direct comparison with raw figures. We have to convert it to a percentage. And the percentage then is 0.232 percent. Mm. Now, another thing here is to keep talking about these very small numbers can be um, very tedious. But as I said, I'm talking about a percent so per 100. And mm. if we want to start stop talking about 0.0 whatever, we, we can actually sort of um, scale scale them up. So rather than per 100, we can say, um, you know, per 1,000. So the 79 uses of the word day in Mankovic becomes, um, you know, 1.98 per 1,000. But even that's a bit awkward. So why mm. don't we do just keep scaling it up and go mm. to 100,000? Mm. So we scale it up to 100,000. So we get Mankovic um, using the word day 198 times per 100,000 words. Mm. Wells is 58 times per 100,000 words. And Susan Cain, it is 232 times per 100,000 words. Now, just quoting those figures, you can see that uh, Susan Cain is higher than Mankovic and Wells. But he's much. Susan Cain is much closer to Mankovic than it is to Wells. You know, mm. Susan Cain, two hundred and thirty-two, is very close to Mankovic's one hundred and ninety-eight, and Wells is all, all the way down to fifty-eight. But obviously, the, um, quantifying it that way isn't enough as well. Um, you know, that's very informal. So, what we do is um, we actually do what we did earlier with the. Um, we just use the ratio again. We just divide one into the other. You know, when we looked at relative frequency, you know, I just divided 79 into 440,000 and we got the, um, you know, the percentage. So we can do this again. We just divide Mankovic's uh, frequency into Citizen Kane and Wells's frequency into Citizen Kane. So the Citizen Kane frequency is 232. In Mankovic, it is 198. Divide one into the other. That's all you have to do. Mm. And you end up with 1.17, which is, um, you, can, you know, as, as a ratio. Then do the same with Wells. And again, obviously put them in the same order. So 232 divide by 58, and you get four. Now, if you had a ratio, if that figure came out as one, it would say it would be identical. You would say that these two samples are identical. 
you know, so Susan Cain has uh, 232 per 100,000 words. Now, if the sample I was comparing it to also had 232, that would give you, um, you know, you divide one into the other. It's obviously 232 divided into 232, you get one. And so a ratio of one would suggest identity, complete identity between the two samples. So obviously you don't uh, get complete uh, identity here, but you know, 1.17 is pretty close. That's the Mankovich, but Wells is four. That's completely uh, different. Basically what that means um, is that uh, Susan Cain, there are four times more uses of the word today than there are in Wells. And in Mankovich, there's 1.17 or uh, more uh, or less in terms of uh, Susan Cain. Could it be argued that, I mean, I can think of several objections here, and I'm assuming that what you're doing is you're doing this over and over again with lots and lots of different things. And so that yeah, you... You, can't, you can't do this with one word. I'm just giving one word as an example. So I do four, 44 words and those 44 words, and then I average out all of these um, uh, ratios and then you get a final ratio. And so that's, that is the, uh, so that's how you work. That's how you work it out. So, what are your what are your conclusions then? Well, I just point out that then in the next chapter, I, I then visualize this by putting it onto confidence interval. Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I won't go into that. It would get more complicated. But So I, I actually create these graphs. But you can imagine a graph where one... Um, again, it's uh, if you reach the uh, ratio of one, that means identity. So you just plot uh, Mankiewicz and Wells on this graph. And so for the word day, um, Mankiewicz would be very close to that one, and Wells would be all the way up at the top of the graph. So the closer you get to that ratio of one, you know, the closer the authorship. Um, as I said, I, I did that for 44 words and... Um, you know, combined all the different um, ratios. And I ended up, um, as I said, I did this three times. And I just talk about the uh, the 13 scenes version. And what I discovered a certain pattern there that, um, you know, Orson Welles's um, statistical linguistic profile is dominant in four out of those 13 scenes. And those four scenes, one of them is very problematic, but um, it's the first three scenes of the film. So the prologue, uh, news on the march, and then the scene after it in the projection room. And then after the projection room scene, um, the film then moves into Thompson going to interview everybody. And that's where the signature, stylistic signature changes dramatically, where uh, Mankovich, his signature suddenly becomes much more dominant. Uh, in the screenplay. Now, Wells' um, uh, signature becomes dominant in the last scene as well. When Thompson is summarizing Kane's life, you know, they're in the basement and they're looking at all this stuff in the basement. And Thompson gives this speech about, you know, how to sum up somebody's life. Well, that's where Orson Wells' um, signature reappears. So the uh, the prologue scene, you know, it, it, it's written in a very literary manner. 
and as one word of dialogue, of course, just Rosebud, but it is written as almost if it's a novel. And um, there's absolutely no trace of Mankovich in there at all. So Wells clearly wrote that. Um, now, people say, OK, that's in the first draft of the screenplay. But, you know, Wells and Mankovich met before Mankovich started to write the first draft. And I imagine that Wells then you know, wrote this prologue and said, well, this is how it's going to begin. And then we're going to have a news on the march. And then they'll be in the projection room. And basically, then he, he then you know gives uh, Mankovich instructions then to you know to write the rest of the screenplay, but except for the um, the uh, summary right at the end of the film. So as I said, I charted all these frequencies on the graph. Um, so all the frequencies are, are close to Wells in scenes one, two, and three and thirteen. And then he suddenly veers off um, when we get to the main part of the screenplay. Now, there are obviously are variations. <clears throat> um, there are very small variations. Um, you know, when Thompson is interviewing Leyland in, in this nursing home, you know, there, there's, a, there's a little blip on the graph which suggests that Wells actually wanted to uh, intervene here and wanted to make sure that this was, this was right. You know, it's actually a very comical scene where uh, Leyland is, uh, is avoiding all of uh, Thompson's questions and says, you know, can you get me some cigars, you know, put them in, um, um, you know, so, you know, disguise them and try to sneak them in. And while Thompson is trying to ask him about um, Kane, and I think all of that humour, then, you know, sort of an indication of Wells actually intervening um, to say we need to, you know, because that's the key, one of the key to the films, actually, is that uh, relationship between Le um, Kane and Leland and Wells really wanted to get that right. So I, I imagine he strongly edited those those moments. Okay, let me let me play devil's advocate then. Um, one of the, I mean, I know that this sort of tech uh, statistical analysis has been used on things like Shakespeare's plays to establish authorship, and especially things like uh, Macbeth. You know, various parts of Macbeth has, have now been included in Thomas Middleton's collected works because um, analysis shows has proved quite decisively that there are whole scenes that Thomas Middleton uh, uh, wrote. However, with Shakespeare, all we have are the plays. We don't have the performances. Instead, with Citizen Kane, we have the film. So the argument of authorship, the text, doesn't have the relationship uh, to us as it does uh, with Shakespeare's plays. So couldn't it be argued that authorship is, is not necessarily located in the screenplay, albeit seventh draft, but is located on the screen? Uh, well, firstly, with the with the Shakespeare, it's um, you know there's a lot of documentation that uh, you know Shakespeare, like many other playwrights, um, co-authored screenplays, uh, the plays because they they were very busy. Uh, exactly, you know, the same thing happened with Citizen Kane. You know, Shakespeare was uh, uh, you know didn't have time to write a whole whole play, um, so you know he he collaborated with with others. And the collaboration comes down to the fact that, uh, you know, Shakespeare say, well, you write these scenes and I write the other scenes and we, you know, we won't edit each other's work. So that's why you can detect um, authorship, uh, multiple authorship in Shakespeare's plays, especially the late ones, you know, we're talking about the late, you know, there, there is a very famous book that's dealt with this by um, Brian Vickers called Shakespeare Co-Authorship. It's a 500 page volume and I used it as my one of my main texts because you know it's Shakespeare co-author so mm. um and he uses some statistical analysis there and you know he's a renowned um Shakespeare scholar and obviously with um Citizen Kane uh you know Wells was at uh, RKO and um developing these projects and none of them were working so his um you know his I think it was you know, he's on his, um, he's there for almost a year and he hadn't um, made a, a film. So he's starting to panic because he wasn't fulfilling his contract. So he uh, he came up with, well, I, you know, I'd have to hire somebody to help me write um, a screenplay in order to, you know, fulfill the RKO contract. Uh, 
so then he started his collaboration with uh, with Mankiewicz. Um, so obviously Wells would, um, you know, control, you know, the, the tone of the film by saying, well, here were the opening scenes. Um, as I said, they are, one of them is problematic. The news on the march is very problematic. It looks like Wells, but we have documentation that, of course, um, John Houseman said that he wrote it several times. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, it's um, imitating um, the voiceover of, um, you know, new, News on the March. It's, it's just, uh, perhaps it's just a genre thing. And it's a Yep, and it just sounds like, uh, it just sounds like, um, you know, Wells' dialogue, um, you know, Wells' uh, fingerprint. But anyway, that's what I think happened when they met before Mankiewicz started writing is that Wells set up the whole project. So here's the prologue and here's the opening scenes. And this is how it has to end with this final scene. And then Mankiewicz was then tasked with writing um, the, the main scenes, which of course were then heavily edited by, by Wells, you know, by cutting a lot of material. But of course, if you cut material that your, your authorial signature doesn't suddenly appear, you see, that's, mm. that's the problem. That's one of the objections with, uh, okay, Wells did a great deal of creative work by editing and cutting um, and revising someone else's writing, but the uh, original author's signature is still there. And to get to, back to your, your question, that yes, Wells is an auteur in terms of filmmaking, but we're you know, treating the screenplay as a separate entity, as a, as a text. So we're looking at um, the screenplay in itself as, as a text to, to analyze. Um, so obviously Wells did excel in terms of directing, but, um, you know, several of his biographers say he, you know, that that's where he really excelled, but he didn't really excel when it came to, to writing. That's the more tedious part of uh, creativity. You know, it, it also goes back to the War of the Worlds, um, you know, radio play. <clears throat> you know, it's actually adapted um, by somebody else and, and who, who wrote it. And actually, you know, it did go to court. Mm. You know, the, uh, and uh, Wells lost because, you know, the, the text was written by, you know, was it Kosh, who, you know, he's hired to write the text. But the reason why... You know, everybody panicked is because the way it was staged by Orson Welles in the radio studio. But when you look at the text, it was written by somebody else uh, who's, of course, adapting uh, another text. So, you know, it's it, that's the issue. Where do you locate authorship? Yeah, um, but, you know, but... Welles worked on radio for several years, but every one of them was an adaptation. Mm. You know, he one of his first adaptations was... Um, um, you know, uh, Victor Hugo, you know, the, the Miserable, but, uh, you know, a huge novel. And, you know, his main job was to cut it, you know, just cut out these snippets. Literally, he would cut them out and paste them onto the uh, screenplay. He didn't even write them out. He just cut and paste the bits that he wanted in the screenplay. So he was very good at editing text. But, of course, there's, there's no stylistic signature in that. You know, it could be thematic. You know, he picked particular moments, but in terms of language and style, that you know, he, his signature isn't there. Well, he did it as a teenager. He he was cutting uh, for when he was at Todd's Academy for Boys. He was um, cutting uh, all of Shakespeare's history plays into a King's Cycle, which is like absolutely, um, you know, the 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 gall of the man. You know, I mean, at least he wasn't claiming authorship, but he was. Yeah, but uh, yeah, editing editing uh, Shakespeare in his uh, while well, still a teen. Yeah, yeah, are we, and then he comes back with Chimes of Midnight, perhaps one of the best. Uh, Shakespeare plays ever put put to to cinema, um, which which is continuing that process of just chopping up Shakespeare's plays and cram and putting his favourite bits together as as much an interpretation as it is a thing. So I mean, I, in a way, I guess I, I I come back to to the answer is is to the to the to the question is yes, Victor Hugo wrote the novel on which he based the the play, radio play. Yes, this other. Uh, a writer wrote the, the, the radio script from which it was based. Yes, Herman Mankiewicz co-wrote uh, the screenplay. I mean, that isn't 
necessarily even uh, controversial. It's it's on the it's on the screen, but the authorship of the film. I mean, you could argue it's a three hander. You know, Greg Toland shares the title card with the director, which is which is ex- is extraordinary at the time um, that the director would share a title card with the director of photography. Yeah, it's it's a different research question. Yeah, it's you know treating the screenplay as um, you know as an entity in itself rather than. Uh, with, with the finished film, it's something that's developed recently of uh, you know screenplay studies. It's not how to write a screenplay, but using the screenplay as an object of study and and then promoting the uh, the writer uh, within film studies rather than always focusing on the, um, the the director. Does that extend to like unmade screenplays as well? Yeah, one of my samples is actually an unmade screenplay, but. Which is even better, uh, you know, one of um, Mankiewicz's screenplay that I used for like forty thousand word sample. It's it was wasn't even made into a film, but that means it wasn't edited by anyone. The, you know, he the... wrote the screenplay, and then they said, "Well, we can't make this," so um, so it didn't go through a production process, didn't go through rewrites. So we it's more authentically is. So same with um, a Wells film um, screenplay, uh, you know, bit the big brass ring. So it's. Um, obviously, it was made later by somebody else, but uh, the way he wrote it, it you know, it's, um, it's a text that nobody else edited. I think it's fascinating, actually. That I remember talking to Charles Eldon, uh, I think it was last year, about Michael Cimino. And uh, Michael Cimino had a room in his house which was just, you know, to the floor to ceiling with written screenplays that he'd never stopped writing since Heaven's Gate, but just didn't have the opportunity to ever film. Um, and the idea that I got was that the minute he died, they just all became worthless because there was no one's going to go in there and go through those screenplays and actually make a film out of them. It was just like, uh, you know, it was like, well, I guess it's a bigger version of what happens whenever anybody dies. Suddenly, all the the stuff in their life in their house just becomes, you know, charity shop fodder. To go back to this this question of Wells's authorship, you know him. You know, the Writers Guild of America, you know, defines uh, authorship of a screenplay in terms of, you know, the first author must have written about 50% of it and uh, and so on. So, you know, they they measure authorship in terms of percentages as well. And indeed, with copyright uh, law, um, I had a fun time going through a United States copyright law um trying to you know make sense of it but in in the end they say it's not the ideas you can't copyright ideas you can only copyright copyright the expression of ideas as manifest in a text so mm. this is why wells lost the uh the copyright uh legal challenge uh because he didn't write the text you know he did something far more powerful which was the staging of that for radio but the writing of the text itself, um, you know, he, he doesn't own a copyright on it. So, so, so what does this, uh, as a as a research um, subject, what, where, where can, how can you apply this to people's understanding? Is it is it just establish settling those questions once and for all, or or, or, or in terms of the historical record, or how does yeah, it? Yeah, if you think about um, what we do in arts and humanities, uh, you know, we. We just basically pick our favorite films and um, uh, and then write about them as if they are, you know, the defining feature, you know, the defining nature of cinema. You know, Andre Bazin did this all the time, but we, well, you know, we all do this to some extent. That uh, you know, all our work is really um, is completely um, inflected with um, uh, you know confirmation bias. Mm. And you know, obviously, I, I've done this as well. But I get to a point where I, I, I say, well, do I want to now, you know, write another analysis proving that you know David Lynch is uh, makes puzzle films, you know, uh, and you know, students do this as well. And I, I try to say, well, it's it's confirmation bias. It's it's a closed question, and you need to you need to open yourself up to the fact that your question may have a different answer. So I'll just give a an example that students do all the time. It's, um, you know, we do 
uh, feminist analysis. And mm -hmm. so a student says, I'm going to pick this, I'm going to look at this film and prove that it's um, it's a patriarchal film. And obviously you say, well, you've already come to your conclusion. So what, what's, what's the point? And, you know, the, if you state your conclusion like that, you said, well, all you're going to do is just cherry pick data and say, well, that there we are. See, I've proved my, um, I've proved my point. And I say to students, so it needs to be an open question. You say, okay, I'll take this film and ask, is it, you know, is it a patriarchal film or is it not? Or where is it part? Is there some scenes patriarchal or not patri patriarchal? So it should be an open question. The way you, uh, approach it is then you say okay i'm going to use a particular theory and a particular method and apply that and i will find out i don't know what the answer will be i will find out by applying a particular theory and according to the principles of that theory it will either be patriarchal or not and then you can say well we we'll use a different theory and then we come to a different answer um so there here we're we avoid relativism by saying it can be anything you like because it's always grounded in a particular theory and method mm. but um and it's not we're not saying it's universal we're saying um it's relative to that theory and method if you follow the method you will get a particular result you can use a different method and you can get to a different result and then you can compare them the same with um citizen kane uh you know basically i you know if you want me to put it bluntly i don't care who wrote it that that really is. I don't care. I I don't have any vested interest in promoting Orson Welles or Mankiewicz. Now I know if I start, you know, my results give uh, Mankiewicz the edge. You know, it's, more of it was written by Mankiewicz than Welles. You know, using my methods, and you know, it's going to get me into trouble with Welles aficionados. If I if I said, oh yes, yeah, you know, almost all Welles, then you know, there there won't be any Mankiewicz supporters coming after me. Perhaps uh, I guess uh, David Fincher would uh, is sort of a supporter of uh, of Mankiewicz, but you know, it's very much a minority. So yeah, my my results uh, are going to uh, annoy a few, you know, Wells. But I, I I tell them, okay, you you may have known Wells, but. You know, here's um, here's the actual results. He was a good storyteller. You know, there's mm. these famous uh, stories about him in the 70s sitting in the same restaurant, telling these um, stories about his past to everyone who came to his dinner table. And yeah, he's a, he's a great storyteller. But you know, if you think about it in legal terms, in in uh, court of law, it's uh, you know you need the evidence, not mm. just uh, great stories. Uh, about that, in terms of the writing, uh, you know, it, Wells often used uh, dictation as as part of his writing. Does that in any way influence your your results? No, somebody did a study of um, Henry James. Uh, Henry James, um, you know, he uh, developed uh, a cramp in his hands, and um, for the last few of his novels, he actually dictated them as well. And, you know, if Henry James, you imagine his, his incredibly long, complex sentences, you think, well, he, if he's, he's no longer writing it, but dictating it, it must, they must have changed. And so someone did a very careful study of before um, he hired, um, you know, before he hired a stenographer and afterwards, and there's absolutely no difference. That's partly due to the remarkable um, nature of, you know, Henry James is right that those complex right. sentences were in his head and he could dictate them. That's mm. absolutely, um, uh, um, you know, unusual. Um, I guess it's unusual for him, you know, so it's a special case. But, yeah, he did dictate his later novels and th there's no stylistic difference between them. You can't tell that there's a difference. But, you know, Mankiewicz was doing the same. You know, mm. when we see it in the film Mank, he's, uh, you know, he's... A broken leg and he can't do very much so he's you know, again he's dictating yeah obviously we, we know that uh, it's such a, a long prolix uh, draft that he produced and it had to be very carefully edited out but again if you edit someone's work that your stylistic signature still doesn't uh, appear
Okay, well, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I, I hope um, uh, it's definitely going to be contribute to the argument. I don't necessarily think it's going to stop the argument definitively, but it will con- contribute and make us all uh, regard it in a, a way which is a bit more refreshingly objective. I agree with your idea of the confirmation bias being being not altogether helpful in this case. Uh, one last question, Warren. Um, uh, do you have a, a film book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Well, if they want to be um, challenged, earlier I, I talked about Thomas Alsace's work on the Mind Game film. Thomas uh, unfortunately died quite suddenly in 2019, and he had this unfinished manuscript, uh, which was uh, on the Mind Game film. And so uh, I decided, along with um, a few other colleagues, you know, Dana Polin and, and Song Hoon and um, Thomas's widow, that we would we would finish this project for him. And this actually happened during the uh, COVID lockdowns. Now, firstly, I was I, I was actually doing this uh, cane work at home during the COVID lockdown. It's, you know, it's actually a good time to, to sit there and relearn statistics and um, do all this incredible counting of, of words um, during, during lockdown, because I couldn't go out anyway. Um, but the second thing I was doing was uh, helping to edit uh, Thomas's final book, the Mind Game film. We had this, uh, the, uh, the, so the three editors and then uh, Sylvie, uh, Thomas's uh, widow. We we had this uh, email group and we were literally emailing each other almost every day about um, Thomas's book, the Mind Game film. And we we spent a year editing it, and then then it was published. And you know, it's a culmination of Thomas's thinking about the Mind Game film. And it's just um, such an overwhelming book anyway. But I, w- I would recommend that if, um, you know, you really want a, a challenge. So, you know, Thomas has posthumously published book, The Mind Game Film. Brilliant. Which, that's, uh, that's my recommendation. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Warren. And thanks so much for taking your time to talk to us today. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.